The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. All right. Good evening, everyone. Trust that you had a wonderful Saturday. And here we are at church, ready to open up God's Word. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it with me to Colossians chapter 3. The title of my message for you is Jesus at Home and at Work. Last week, we began this incredibly practical section of Paul's letter to the church at Colossae by using this analogy of a bento box. It's like a lunchbox with a bunch of different compartments and dividers in it. And what we said is that God has no interest in remaining cooped up in one compartment of our life. He wants to break all the walls and all of the dividers. He wants to make his way into every compartment and touch and impact and influence every sphere and every arena of our lives. And what we're going to see tonight is that God wants to make his way into our home life, and he wants to make his way into our work life. God has a vested interest in being a part of what goes on in those two areas of your life. That should come as no surprise. I heard one pastor say it like this. If your faith doesn't work at home, it doesn't work at all. <laughs> so it really needs to start there in the home. And from the beginning, the family has been central to God's plans for the world. It's the basic building block for the rest of society. Plato, the great uh, philosopher, said it like this. The life of a nation is the life of its families written in large. In other words, as things go in the home, so they tend to go in the community. And as they go in the community, so they tend to go in the nation. Now, that's the way God has designed things, and Satan is aware of this. This is why he continually aims his attacks at our families. Have you noticed that? Satan wants to destroy the nuclear family, and he's working overtime to do that. He wants to disrupt God's plans. He wants to warp our idea of what a family even is and redefine it. Why? Because he knows that if he can destroy the family, then he can destroy the community and the nation and God's ultimate plans for his people, his kids. Now, God has a plan for your family as well. He wants to bless your family. He wants you to flourish. He wants your home to be like a little slice of heaven. Doesn't that sound good? But he can only do that when we align our homes with what his word says. So Paul's going to lay out what that looks like and how to make that happen. And he begins in verse 18 by saying this, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. This is verse 18. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And fathers... Do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. So some really practical advice that Paul begins here with as he talks about what it looks like to bring Jesus into our marriages. Since good marriages are the foundation of solid families, that's where Paul starts. Now, you have to understand that, that our culture often talks 
down on marriage. It paints a less than flattering picture of marriage. It talks, you, you, you hear this in, in, in conversation. Sometimes a spouse will jokingly refer to their spouse as the old ball and chain, you know. I've, I've heard a comedian who talked about the three rings of marriage. They said, first comes the engagement ring, and that's followed by the wedding ring, and that's followed by a lifetime of suffering, <laughs> you know. And so we have these jokes, but the Bible paints a different picture. It has a different perspective, God's plan for marriage. Proverbs 18.22 says it like this, he who finds a wife finds a good thing, somebody say amen, amen, and obtains favor from the Lord. See, God wants to bless our marriages, but, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. Anyone who tells you that marriage is easy is, is lying, amen? It takes a lot of hard work. It takes a lot of prayer, time, attention, and it, constant tending. It's like a garden. Good marriages don't happen automatically. They don't happen accidentally. Nobody ever just kind of stumbled their way into a good marriage. And so in these verses, Paul shows us how by walking in God's design, how as we walk in our God-given roles, that this is one key to experiencing God's blessing in our marriages. And so he begins by describing the wife's role. And the, the, the role of the wife in a marriage can be summarized in a single word. Paul says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. So that word, submit. And of course, this word has <laughs> generated just a little bit of buzz, a little bit of controversy over the years. I'm kidding, right? A lot of controversy. And to some, submission is a four-letter word, right? It's a dirty word. And, it's been branded by many as sexist. Others view it as evidence of the kind of outdated and old-fashioned thinking that permeates the Bible. And they say, see, this is why the Bible isn't, isn't, isn't current, and it needs to be tossed out. Some men have even used this verse as justification to mistreat or even abuse their wives. And I just want to start by saying all of those perspectives are horribly wrong. They're unbiblical, and they're not God's heart or his intent when he talks about wives submitting to your husbands. Listen, submission has nothing to do with worth or value. Let me say that again. Submission has nothing to do with worth or value and instead has everything to do with roles and responsibilities. A wife is in every way equal to her husband. And so I just, I need to lay that groundwork. God is not anti-woman. It's just that he is pro-order. And you can see this throughout all of creation. You see it in God's design for the church. You see it in his design for government, in his design for business, and yes, even in the home. God has structured and oriented things to thrive and to function best in a particular way. The Greek word translated submit is hupotasso, and it's a word that was borrowed from the military world, and it literally means to arrange under in rank. And so we're talking about the authority of the husband within the confines of the home. Before you get all hot and bothered by that, consider the fact that this is something that even makes its way into the relationship 
that exists between Jesus and God the Father within the Trinity. See, Jesus, nobody would argue this. Jesus, he is in every way equal to the Father. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him in bodily form. We read that earlier in our studies through Colossians. And yet, throughout the Gospels, we read about Jesus gladly and willingly submitting to the will of his heavenly Father. One example of that would be John 8, 29, where Jesus said this, I only do those things which please the Father. And so he found his joy in submitting to the Father. Now, I want to say this as well. There are limits to the, the scope or the confines in which we, as you as women, are called to submit to your husbands. And that is only in those, with regards to those things that are fitting in the Lord. So the moment your husband asks you to do something that isn't fitting in the Lord, you are free from this command. Also, I want to say this. God's call for wives to submit to their husbands doesn't mean that they are somehow second-class citizens in the kingdom or somehow less than their husbands. In fact, I want to I point out that women are actually the pinnacle or the crown jewel of God's creation. Can all of my brothers just say amen to that? <laughs> women were the last thing that God created. So he created everything else, and then he created the woman. Not because she was an afterthought, mind you. It was just that after God had created everything and he places man there within the garden, he realizes that the world was still missing something, a woman's touch. And so he causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep, and from his side, he creates Eve. In Matthew Henry's commentary, he points out that, oh, the rain's coming down. All right. Lord, would you send your rain? Would you reign on earth, even as you reign in heaven, in Jesus' name? Always grateful for the rain in Southern Cali, man. But I love this quote from Matthew Henry's commentary. He points out that women were created from the rib of man to be beside him, not from his head to top him, nor from his feet to be trampled by him, but from under his arm to be protected by him and from near his heart to be loved by him. Beautiful thought. If you go back to Genesis 2, God describes Eve, and he uses a very particular phrase to describe her role. He calls her a helper corresponding to man, or to Adam in this case, a helper corresponding to him, Genesis 2.18. Now, the words there in the Hebrew are izer kenegdo, izer kenegdo. Now, the word izer. It literally means helper. That's how it's translated. It, it shows up 21 times in the Bible, but only five of those times does it refer to a woman. The other 16 times where the word ezer or helper shows up, it's referring to God. And in each of those instances, it refers to him in a military sense with regards to his role in defending Israel. Now, ladies, listen up. This is really cool. What God is telling us here is that you have within your makeup and your design gifts that help your husband and your family in the battles that you will inevitably face. I've seen this play out in my own life over and over again. My wife, she has a 
take on things, a spiritual sensitivity to things, and a discernment in the, the realm of the spirit that I don't possess. And she'll, she'll say to me with regards to a situation that I'm walking through, or a battle that I'm facing, or a person that I'm confronting, and she'll say, oh, watch out for this, or I'm sensing this, or I don't have a peace about that, or with regards to our kids and their friends. And she'll point things out. And as a man, I'm typically just like, oh, I didn't see that at all. And sure enough, as time plays out, it, it proves to be true. They're, the women are they're our helpers. They're our warrior princesses. So the word Izer, helper, defender, warrior. And then Kenegdo, that means opposite of or opposed to. But don't think in terms of, uh, of opposition like a fight or disharmony, but rather think of balance, right? If all you had was one wing for a plane, that plane's not getting off the ground. Or perhaps better yet, you could think of a stool. And you have the one leg that represents the role of the husband, and then you have the other leg that represents the role of the wife. But you still need that third leg in order for there to be harmony and balance. So what is that? Well, that's Jesus Christ. And he's the centerpiece and the rock of every marriage. And when you have those three legs supporting and sustaining the marriage, it thrives. So that's the role of the women within the home. Now let's address the guys. It's your turn. The husband's role, verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. As Paul turns his attention to the men, I want to say that oftentimes you look around at the home and you see that men have abdicated their God-given responsibilities there. And Paul's exhortation to the husbands is just as short as his was to the wives, where he just, you can sum it up in one word. He says, husbands, love your wives. And the word love there is the Greek word agape. It's the word that describes selfless love, sacrificial love, self-giving loves. So what does it look like for a man to love his wife in the way that the Bible describes? Number one, guys. Love her with your words. Don't just you know, assume that she knows you love her. You need to tell her each and every day how you feel about her. Don't be like the guy who told his wife, hey, I told you I loved you on our wedding day. And if anything changes, I'll let you know. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you need to tell her. She needs to hear. Amen, ladies? Tell her daily. But don't just tell her with your words. Show her you love her through your actions. There's a great book out there. You've probably, I'm sure, either heard of it or many of you might have even read it. It's The Five Love Languages by Dr. Gary Chapman. I, I recommend it. And he talks about how we receive and speak the language of love in different ways. And, and so there are these five different love languages. There's, there's words of affirmation and gifts and touch and acts of service and quality time. And so my question for you guys is, do you know which language your wife speaks? And are you speaking to her in that language? I found with my wife, she speaks all five of those languages. It just depends on the day. And really, <clears throat> we should be looking to love our wives in all of those ways. But sometimes you're thinking that you're loving your wife, but you're speaking a different language. And so she's not comprehending your efforts. So show her you love her in those ways. And, and then thirdly, love her biblically. You see, there's a parallel passage 
to this one that we're reading here in Colossians. It's found in Ephesians 5. And there, Paul tells husbands that they are to love their wives. And I, I have this on the screen. So in fact, let's read it out loud together. Love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So how did Christ love the church? Well, it's right there in the text. He gave himself up for her. Now, oftentimes, we interpret that to mean that we should be willing to take a bullet for our woman, our wife. And of course, I think that's, that's part of it, and that's admirable. But that's certainly not all that Paul intended through that verse. What he's talking about on, on the daily is sacrificing for our wives in a way that calls us to nail our desires and our agendas and our will to the cross in order that we might put her needs first. In other words, when your wife sees you, she should see a cross. And this brings us to the area where I feel like many men, again, husbands, fail, which is we're selfish. Selfishness is all about taking. It's all about what can I get? And it's all about what have you done for me lately? But if we love our wives biblically, if we love our wives the way the Bible calls us to do, sacrificially, giving up ourselves for her, even as Christ did for the church, then we're not going to be so concerned about having our own needs met, but instead we'll become, instead of selfish, selfless. And selfless love is giving. It's more concerned with the needs and wishes of others. It's what Jesus modeled for us. And it's what we, as husbands, have been called to model to our wives. And when you love her like that, you'll see her begin to submit to you willingly. And the three legs of that stool will stand perfectly. That brings us to the next point, which is the role of the kids. We see this in verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything. And all the parents said, Amen. Amen. For this pleases the Lord. Obedience is a serious issue. It's disobedience in the Old Testament is, is likened to rebellion against the Lord, to give you an idea of the seriousness with which God views this. And obedience is super important. Why? Because as we obey our parents, we then are learning how to obey authority figures that God places over us. And more importantly, ultimately, we're learning how to obey the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, having said that, I'd also like to point out that I think it's essential that we, as parents, draw a distinction between raising our kids to be merely compliant and raising our kids to truly be obedient. I want to draw this out. What our goal should be is not compliance from our kids. What we're after is heart-fueled obedience. And what marrying parents do is they mistake compliance for obedience. Now, what is compliance? Compliance is just kind of falling in line and doing what you're told. And let's be honest, getting a child to be compliant is, is relatively easy until they reach a certain age, at least. I mean, getting them to outwardly do what you say, it, it's somewhat easy. But that's not the goal. And, and some parents mistakenly think, hey, my kid is doing great because they never step out of line and they just always do what I say. 
and they think that they've succeeded. But then what happens? These kids who have outwardly complied, but they've never obeyed willingly from the heart, they, they get out of your home, they go off to college, and they start raising hell. They turn their backs on God. What is that an indication of? It, it indicates that maybe they were falling in line and outwardly obeying, but their hearts were far from you or from the Lord. See, the compliance thing addresses the outward behavior, but it never addresses the heart. It's, it's just about not breaking the rules. Obedience, on the other hand, is about pleasing God. And if all you do is focus on external compliance without addressing your child's heart, then I'm afraid you've failed. Because we're not just called to train our kids' behavior. We're called to shepherd their hearts. This is what the Proverbs meant when Solomon said this, above all else, guard your heart, for out of it spring the issues of life. That's Proverbs 4.23. So the real goal isn't just that we would have compliant kids, but rather that we would have kids who have hearts for Jesus, who have hearts for the Lord. And so we need to learn how to shepherd our children. And this never ends. As my kids are getting older, I'm finding that even at 17 and 15, my two older ones continue to need guidance and shepherding. And by the way, as your kids grow and mature, the relationship will naturally change. Right? When they're young, as a parent, you're kind of like a cop. And you're there to kind of, you know, just Enforce the rules the way a cop would. And that stage usually brings you up until they're about 10 or 11 or so. But once they hit 12, 13 years old, you can't continue to parent like a cop. You, you, you need to transition into a new role whereby you now start to coach them. And, and a coach is different from a cop. A coach might have a lot of influence on the game, and they might call the plays in the game. But, but the players are the ones out on the court doing the actual playing. And so your kids are now 13, 14, 16, 17, and they have more freedom. And you, you give them a, a longer leash, as it were, and you even let them fall down a little bit. Now, as a coach, you still have the authority, right? You can pull the plug. You can pull the player out of the game, and you can sit them on the bench, and you can, you can take away their playing time. And so we need to do that from time to time as parents. But we need to let them go out and explore and, and fall and make mistakes and then find grace and get coaching from us. And then that leads to that third stage of parenting, where now they've moved out of your house. They're no longer under your authority. You're not paying their bills anymore. And so now you're a consultant. And this is the, the landing spot. This is the goal, right? That now that your kids are on their own, they don't have to come to you and do what you say, that they would willingly pick up the phone and call you and, and use you as a consultant to say, Mom, Dad, what would you do in this situation? How would you handle this? Or how would you move forward with this? And so the roles change. Obedience is the goal, not compliance. It's walking together with them through life in a way that honors God and shapes their hearts in such a way that they long to please the Lord. And by the way, the, the, the perfect place for them to do that is in the home where you have a loving mom and a loving father who are both loving Jesus. Now, in verse 21, Paul goes on to say this. He addresses the fathers specifically. He says, fathers, do not embitter your children, or they'll become discouraged. 
Now, he doesn't address the moms here. He specifically singles out the dads and their role in parenting here. And again, I think this has to do with culture. Like in our day, it was pretty much the same way in Paul's day where the, the, the job of raising the kids more or less fell on the shoulders of the mom. And Paul wanted the dads to know how important their role was with regards to the home too. And so dads have a certain God-given authority to speak life and to speak blessing within the home. In the Old Testament, fathers were actually responsible and tasked with God by God to, to speak a blessing over their children. And, and as dads today, I believe we have a similar power with our words. And we can use our words either for good or for harm. Listen to this verse. Actually, I'd love it again if we could read this together out loud. This is Proverbs 18:21. It says this. Let's read it again. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. So with our words, we have tremendous power, tremendous authority. And dads, let me address you specifically, because moms are naturally encouragers. Dads, your words have more power than you could possibly imagine. And your kids will grow up believing the words that you speak over them. So choose your words carefully. A flippant word or a careless criticism can discourage a kid's heart and shape their future and even embitter their soul. That's what Paul talks about here. He says, don't embitter your children. They'll become discouraged. We've all seen that kid who walks around with the downcast gaze and the slumped shoulders. And it's because they come from a home where they're never built up, but they're constantly being torn down. And so Paul reminds us that we can use our words to either hurt or to heal, to tear down or to build up, to bless or to curse. So we need to learn to speak words over our kids that will empower them for their future. Here are three powerful phrases that I believe kids need to hear from us as dads all the time. Number one, I love you. I love you. And by the way, you can't buy a kid's love. You might not be able to, you know, you're like, I can't be there, so I just kind of buy them things, and they, I show them my love. I'm not really an emotional person. No, no, no. They need to hear you say that to them over and over again, just like your wife does. A second thing your kids need to hear from you all the time is, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. And a third thing, a powerful little two-word phrase that you can say to your kid that will change and shape their hearts is, I'm sorry. It's a powerful phrase. Why? Because as dads, we blow it regularly. And so when you can humble yourself and go to your kid and say, you know what? I overreacted. I lost my temper. I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have said that. And I'm sorry. They'll see that. You'll model it for them. And then they'll have that heart as they grow older. And they'll bring that into their journey with Jesus. Before we move on, I need to mention the fact that many of us, if not all of us, I think, by nature and by virtue of the fact that none of us have perfect fathers, I think all of us walk around with what has been termed a father wound. And that wound gets created in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it comes as a result of neglect. Sometimes it comes 
as a result of abandonment. In some cases, it comes from abuse. In some cases, it comes in the shape of a giant void because your dad was never there, or you grew up without a dad, or maybe your dad withheld his love from you. And so we carry these wounds with us, and what they do is they end up shaping the way we view our Heavenly Father. So we have these wounds, and then we, we begin to kind of picture God through the lens of the kind of earthly dad that we had here on earth. And Jesus wants to heal those wounds. He wants you to know that wherever your dad failed, you have a father in heaven who is perfect, who will never fail you. And you have been placed in Christ. Again, this is a theme in the book of Colossians. And so that means when God the Father looks at you, he sees his son. He sees Jesus in you and over you. That means you are accepted in him, that you are chosen in him, that you are loved in him, that you are precious to him. You know, there are these two places in scripture, in the gospels, where God, the Father, rips through the heavens and speaks over the life of Jesus. He does it at the beginning of his ministry. Jesus is filled with the Spirit, and he goes out into his ministry. But just before that happens, the heavens are opened at his baptism. And the Father declares, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my Son. He names him. You're my son. You're my daughter, God would say to you this evening. But he doesn't just name him. He claims him, the son that I love. I love you. And God claims you as well. And then halfway through Jesus' ministry, God the Father shows up again. He says the same thing. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then he adds this. Listen to him as he has now begun his ministry. Jesus, or God the Father rather, validates and affirms the ministry of his son. The validation you've been seeking, the affirmation that you desperately need, the, the name that you crave, the approval that you've been chasing, you find all of that in the Father's love. Invite him into those memories and those broken places and those hurts and allow him to heal you. You have a Father who loves you. Let's close with this. Jesus at your job, verses 22 through 25. He says, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism with him. All right, so Paul says, slaves, this is how you're to obey your earthly masters. And immediately, our souls bristle at that. Paul here is addressing slavery. And in Paul's day, there were 60 million slaves. Think about that number. That re number represented about half the population of Rome at the time. 
And, and although Paul doesn't call on slaves to gain their freedom here, there are other places in scripture where he does exactly that. And in fact, when you look at the lives of men like William Wilberforce, who was used in the British Parliament to, to do away with slavery in Europe, and so many others like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. here, who was a minister, many of them, they, they took their principles from scripture to fight against slavery. So Paul here is addressing a situation that was fixed at the time. And wrong though it was, he gives advice on how to operate and survive within it. And I just want to add this as well. Remember, too, that Roman slavery was not the same as our modern antebellum slavery. Roman slaves could be educated. They could be skilled doctors and members of society. Many of them were um, even in government and held government positions. So. For our purposes this evening, we can use Paul's words to describe our roles within the workplace. What does God want for us and from us as Christian employees? Well, he wants us to know first and foremost that we work for God. Regardless of who signs your paycheck, you work for the Lord. When you clock in, when you clock out, it is all for Jesus. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, where we find the first mention of work in the Bible. The Hebrew word that is used there for Adam's work in the garden, garden is the, the Hebrew word abad. It, it shares the same root word as the Hebrew word for worship. Again, I think most Christians tend to see a divide between worship, and that's something that you do on Sundays at church, and then their work, and that's something that happens outside the church. But Paul is tearing down those dividing walls, remember? ripping up our bento boxes. And he's showing us that the two are one and the same. They go hand in hand. Adam worshiped God in the garden, not just by reading his Bible and by praying, but he worshiped the Lord by doing the work that God put him in the garden to do. In fact, the, the very word vocation, we sometimes refer to our job as our vocation. That comes from the Latin word voca, which means calling. So God has a calling on your life. There is a calling for you to use your gifts and talents, the things that he placed within you. And when you do those things with a spirit of excellence, it brings glory to your heavenly father. As an example of that, in Exodus 31, there were these two guys, these figures that are named Bezalel and Oliab. And they were filled with the spirit, the Bible says. So how did that being filled with the Spirit express itself in their lives? Well, they were excellent artists and expert craftsmen. And that's how they fulfilled their calling. They did excellent work. And so too, when you do your job in a way that, that honors and glorifies God, it brings a smile to your Heavenly Father's face. I read a book years ago called Practicing the Presence of God. It was written by a, a monk in the 16th century called, named Brother Lawrence. And so he was a monk, but he got stuck with the un, uh, inspiring job of doing the dishes in the monastery. But over time, in that experience, he learned to find God even in the midst of that mundane task. He learned that when he approached this ordinary task with an extraordinary love for God, that it turned his work into a form of worship. Now, at this point, some of you are thinking, well, 
that's great for these guys, but I really hate my job. And there is nothing redeeming about it. There is no redeeming quality to it. And, and unfortunately, there was a curse placed on the earth. And part of that curse was that our work would become toilsome. And so we feel the sting of that at our jobs sometimes. And maybe you have a job like that. What should you do? Well, it could be that your job is only part of your calling and that it's just the means by which you fund your calling outside of your work. For example, Paul the Apostle. He had a secondary career. We think of him as a preacher and a church planter and a Bible writer. But he was also a tent maker. And that was his means of making money and putting food on the table so that he could go out and fulfill his real passion, which was preaching the gospel. The point in all of this is that whether we're talking about our role in the home as husbands or wives or our role as children or as parents or as employees or as employers, no matter what role you find yourself in, God has a way of wanting to work himself into that part of your life until he just touches and impacts and influences every arena of your life. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.